Welcome to EmergencyMedicineCases.com. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. On this month's episode number 46 on social media and foam in EM learning, we have with us Dr. Rob Rogers, Dr. Brent Toma, and Dr. Ken Milne. Dr. Rogers is an emergency physician and associate professor at the University of Maryland School of Medicine in Baltimore, where he was the director of the Undergraduate Medical Education Program for EM. He's board certified in both EM and internal medicine. He's the director of the teaching course, an annual course for healthcare providers to become better teachers, and he's also the founder of I Teach EM blog. Dr. Ken Milne is an emergency physician and chief of staff at South Huron Hospital in Exeter, Ontario. He's an adjunct professor in the division of EM at University of Western Ontario and is faculty for the best evidence in emergency medicine, as well as the founder and host of the Skeptic's Guide to EM podcast. He's won teaching awards, including Teacher of the Year by the Canadian Association of Emergency Physicians. Dr. Brent Toma is a resident physician of EM at the University of Saskatchewan and the founder and editor of the blog Boring EM, as well as an associate editor of the blog Academic Life in Emergency Medicine. He's also a simulation fellow at the Massachusetts General Hospital at Harvard University. This time around on EM cases, we're going to deviate a bit from the usual EM clinical topics and discuss how we should learn, talk about, share, and apply our vast, ever-growing repository of EM knowledge. Whether you believe it or not, online medical education has gone through a massive transformation, a huge explosion a cataclysmic revolution over the past few years. Emergency medicine is leading the way in this important paradigm shift, which is embodied in the concept of FOMED, free, open access medical education. When I started EM cases back in 2010, there were only a handful of independent online medical education blogs and podcasts, EM Rap, Life in the Fast Lane, EMed Home, EM Crit, Academic Life in EM, and a couple of others. Now in 2014, through sort of a rapid organic cultural evolution or revolution, there are literally hundreds of blogs and dozens of podcasts, not to mention the millions of tweets, hundreds of Google Hangouts, hundreds of screencasts. You get the picture. You may be asking yourself, who actually uses the social media stuff? Well, I don't have exact stats of other podcasts. I can tell you that EM Cases podcasts have been downloaded well over half a million times since its inception in 2010, with monthly downloads and page views on the blog increasing every month, which I imagine is probably not even one-tenth the traffic that a podcast like Scott Weingart's EM Crit gets. And the EM Cases blog hits are nothing compared to the more than a million page views each month that Mike Cadigan and Chris Nixon fetch from their Life in the Fastlane blog. In fact, an article published by Matt and Mike of the Ultrasound Podcast in Academic Medicine in April of this year called A Survey of the Current Utilization of Asynchronous Education Among Emergency Medicine Residents in the United States showed that residents endorsed podcasts as the most beneficial extracurricular medical education activity. 70% of respondents endorsed podcasts compared with 54% for textbooks and 36% for journal articles. Despite these data... There are still some cynics and critics out there who say that social media has no place in EM education, that it only teaches the newest and sexiest topics at the expense of the basic fundamental building blocks of EM, 
that learners waste their time on frivolous and unreliable information, and that tried-and-true textbooks, peer-reviewed journal articles, lectures, and hospital rounds should remain as the only source of educating EM practitioners. Is this viewpoint a valid one? Well, we'll find out. In this episode, with the help of Rob Rogers, Brent Toma, and Ken Milne, some of North America's most prominent experts in this cutting-edge topic, we'll get into key concepts like knowledge translation, swarm-based medicine, the flipped classroom, tacit knowledge sharing, and discuss questions like what is the role of social media in emergency medicine education, is there any evidence that social media tools are changing practice in the day-to-day work of physicians, students, paramedics, and nurses? How can social media change your career as a practicing emergency physician? How can you learn efficiently using social media? What's better, Twitter or Google Plus? How does the traditional peer review process compare to online open peer review post-publication? And a lot more. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Dr. Ken Milne. Thanks very much for having me on the program. And Dr. Brent Toma. Hello, thanks for having me. And Dr. Rob Rogers. It is an absolute pleasure to be here. Hey, not bad for an American trying to do a uh, Not bad British. from a boy from Tennessee in the United States. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so let's jump in. We're going to start off with a little bit of historical perspective and some definitions, but just to orient our listeners a bit. So Dr. Rogers, first of all, let's start with the way we grew up learning emergency medicine. You and I have been practicing for 10, 15 years. Is there anything wrong with the way that we grew up learning emergency medicine before the explosion of social media came along? Well, I don't think so, but honestly, that's all we had. And I remember back to my days as a resident and can probably recall the same thing where all I really had were textbooks and, you know, articles were handed out and, you know, we did okay. But I try to think what would it have been like if we take everything we have today in social media, podcasting, the blogs, I asked myself, would training have been any different? Sure, it would have been, but you know what? We didn't have it. But the bottom line and the way I would end it is just by saying that it's really all we had. I think today learners have really changed compared to what it was like when we were back in residency. You know, they're on their iPads. We didn't have iPads. We didn't have iPhones or any of this stuff. And so I think if you're going to actually effectively educate anybody, you've actually got to speak the language of the learners. So we survived. But when I look at all these wonderful things we're all creating, I would have liked to have had these things back then. But you know what? We didn't. Okay. We're going to get a little bit more into how the old school kind of learning is still important and how we can integrate this new kind of learning. But first we need, I think, to get some definitions under our belt for all our listeners so that the rest of the conversation makes sense. Dr. Milne, what is social media and what is foam? Well, I'll start with giving one of the definitions for social media by Alkvist, the means of interactions among people in which they create, share, and exchange information and ideas in virtual communities and networks. And it's really based on seven building blocks. And those seven building blocks include identity, conversation, sharing, presence, relationships, reputation, and groups. And I think the second part there you asked, because the first part was asking me about social media, and then you wanted to know something about foam or a definition of foam. And I'll just take that back to the doctors that first coined the term, and that was Mike Cadogan and Chris Nixon back in 2012, I believe over a pint of Guinness. And they said that foam stood for free, open access, 
to medical education. And it was supposed to be medical education for anyone, anywhere, anytime. And if you want more information on that, you can go to their website, Life in the Fast Lane, and you'll find that FOAM has one objective, to make the world a better place. So that's what FOAM is. Okay, you can't really argue with that, to make the world a better place. Can you tell us a little bit more about how we make the world a better place with FOAM? Well, by the very nature of it, it's free, right? And there are enough paywalls up there to prevent education. And I think students and residents, and Brent may agree, are graduating with significant debt. So if we can pay it forward and provide them with information at no cost, and yet high-quality information, and it can be available and consumed whenever they want to at their time. So it's asynchronous. When they have that clinical question, they can go looking for it. I think beyond what you just mentioned there with access, I mean, to me, as a resident right now, as part of an academic center, I usually can get access to most medical journals. I don't have a lot of paywalls that get in my way most of the time. But that's not the case all over the world. I think there's educational resources that are now able to be reaching people in lower resource settings, people not affiliated with academic institutions. And I think that's where you're going to see the benefit of this education and these resources being freely distributed for everyone. And I think part of the FOAM movement is that it levels the playing field, right? It levels the playing field for everyone to interact. And that's part of the social media part of it. So anyone can interact no matter what your skill level is. So that's what FOAM is. There's this sort of related concept called swarm-based medicine as opposed to evidence-based medicine. Dr. Mill, can you give our listeners a little bit of a flavor of what swarm-based medicine is? Sure. So starting with evidence-based medicine, it has been a huge advance for how we approach things. And evidence-based medicine is a hierarchy, and that hierarchy starts with eminence-based medicine. That's what I was taught. That's what I was told. And then you go up an evidence-based hierarchy. But eventually, there may be things that you cannot do research on, specifically those involving harm. So we may not have a great source of evidence. And so swarm-based medicine is a way of crowdsourcing medical information to answer a clinical question. Can can you give us an example? So let's say that you're working a shift and something comes up in the clinical encounter with someone and you're not quite sure, should I use antivirals to treat Bell's palsy? And you don't have that information on your fingertips. And so what you do is you could swarm-base that. You could send out that clinical question. You could send out a tweet, and then you could get a tweet back fairly instantly with the social network aspect of things with a reference to the Cochrane Review saying that in most cases, antivirals are not required for Bell's palsy. Good example. I I like to think of foam as the four Ds, not the five Ds that Stuart Swadron describes in his vertical lecture from the EMU conference that we had on the previous EM cases episode, but the four Ds of foam, dissemination, discussion, dissection, and deliberation. And this gives everyone, physicians, nurses, residents, paramedics, and students, a chance to develop their critical thinking skills and decide for themselves whether the information presented to them has merit or not. Dr. Toma, Can you talk a little bit more about these four Ds, dissemination, discussion, dissection, and deliberation? Yeah, so I think that's actually what happens in FOMA, and I think you can think about it in an educational context as a very active thing. So 
you know, stuff is being produced all the time. Resources are always being produced. Papers are always being published. By putting this stuff out there and talking about it in blogs, podcasts, we're disseminating things. We're giving the opportunity for people to really engage with them, to discuss them, to have comments go back and forth, to have blog posts and podcasts written and replied to one another. And those types of activities are very active in that they require engagement from the people that they're better for learning. And so I think that's one of the big beauties of foam is that it allows that active process to happen while at the same time disseminating and developing this sort of swarm based conception of how things should be. And I mean, the swarm's not always going to be right. Sometimes you are going to be wrong. But I think when new evidence comes out, that's something that can be integrated and propagated throughout a large group of people that are having these interactions regularly. So we're not living in our little silos as in, you know, I work in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, so I do something like this. We're disseminating what I'm doing here and, you know, talking about it. And if that's not the way that they do something in other places, I might want to know why, and I might change my practice based on that. And I think collectively we can be a lot more intelligent and learn a lot from each other. Yeah, it's, it's interesting what you say about living in silos. I mean, when I started practicing, you go to work, you see some patients, you go home, you're not really interacting with anyone except the nurses a little bit, the patients a little bit, and then you forget about your shift after and go home and have a beer and relax and when I say silos, I think it's important. I think we classically represent those in our mind as emergency medicine is a silo, surgery is a silo, you know, there's different areas of medicine. But I think we have to recognize that in the big world that we're in, there are regional silos, there are regional ways of doing things that are different than other places in the world. And, and sharing those and discussing those might help us all to be better. Right. So we can not only learn as individuals from each other, but regionally, we can learn from different cities, different provinces, different countries across the world. And, and I think that's what we were missing when we trained. We, we worked, we were in this little compartment and we trained and we finished and we did fine. But there was none of this discussion about what are they doing in the next country or the next state. And that's why I think what we're doing is so much more robust. And it's opening up the conversation, right? It's yeah. expanding the conversation to include more individuals. And what you'll find is the best of foam will bubble up to the top. Because I'm sitting on top of the world. So we've talked a little bit about some definitions of what foam is, what swarm-based medicine is. There's a few more definitions we just have to cover. Dr. Rogers Scott Weingart posted a podcast about a year ago called Tacit Knowledge and Medical Podcasting after receiving an email informing him that residents were bashing medical podcasting. What is tacit knowledge sharing and how does social media support it? Well, first of all, I'd like to meet the residents who were bashing medical podcasting. It seems like all the residents, at least where I work, they're on their iPads, they're listening to, to EMRAP and, and, and your podcast and Ken's podcast. What I think is interesting about podcasts is, you know, the textbooks and the articles really deal with what's called explicit knowledge. We know how to teach it. We know how to draw it on a board. We can test for it. We can pimp residents and medical students during shifts. But what I think podcasts really allow you to do is to share your experience. And first of all, kudos to Scott Weingart, who's a friend and, and just a superb guy and, and just brilliant, who I think in his podcast, Ian Crit really hits on topics that we don't talk about very much, like tacit knowledge sharing. And I think what podcasts really do is they allow you 
to discuss what you've accumulated, for example, in your 15-year career, not just what's in the textbooks, the latest review articles, but how you've put together your 10,000 hours, as Malcolm Gladwell's talked about. And you know what? People follow Scott, right? I mean, you guys know. they. My residents come to me and say, well, this is what Weingart said we should be doing. And you could debate the merits of that, but the residents and the students are listening to this stuff and the faculty, and we're all growing and learning from listening to people's experience, you know? I could read about research, I could take a course on research, but you know, I could listen to Ken Milne talk about practical applications of it on a daily basis and how you actually use it and what he's learned and some of the maybe the goof-ups he's had over the years. So you're learning from people's experience. The hidden curriculum is the residents and students they need this. They need to know the experiences of the people who are teaching them and not just the knowledge is easy. We can dish out the knowledge with articles and textbooks and assignments and send out PDFs. But I I think what podcasts really allow you to do is to share your experiential background and, you know, what you've learned. And, and I think residents learn really well from mistakes that we provide for them. So we, I think it's okay to share your mistakes. And, and that's where I think tacit knowledge comes in the experiential, the pearls, the pitfalls, all those things that you've learned over your career. I think that's valuable. And to learn it through a podcast, that tacit knowledge, it's a very intimate medium. I mean, we're podcasting right now, and if you're listening, I'm talking to you. (laughs) I'm actually in your head right now talking to you, and it's a great way to storytell and share information and learn. And there's a lot of brilliant people out there that I will never meet in person, but I carry them around and listen to them in podcasts on a daily basis. Yeah, you know, Scott Weingart, who's really at the forefront of critical care education, even he will tell you in some of his lectures and podcasts that this is not ready for prime time. I'm not sure if you've heard him say that. That's the kind of stuff you're not going to get in a book or an article. They're not going to say, don't do this. But when he talks about it, you at least know where the research is being done, what might be coming up next. For example, at the SMAC conference, he talked about giving steroids along with other drugs for cardiac arrest. And some people were doing it, some people weren't doing it. But I think when he pushes that envelope and simply discusses his own experiences, I think that's what people want to listen to, what's coming up next. Plus, you get to listen to the sweet, soothing voice of Ken Mellon and Brent Thoma. I would say Rob Orman has the best podcast. Oh, Rob Orman. And there's another shout-out for Rob Orman, who has just a buttery, smooth, berry white, sexy podcast voice. And, you know, I go back and back into his podcast all the time just to listen to his voice. I have a problem. I'm addicted to Rob Orman. Admitting you have a problem is the first of the 12 steps. I have a man crush on Rob Orman, okay? <laughs> You're an old smoothie, I'm an old softie, I'm just like putty in the hands of a boy like you. So I want to get a little bit more into learning. After all, this is what this is all about, it's learning. And one of the key concepts in learning is the idea of knowledge translation. Dr. Toma, what is knowledge translation And how do social media tools and foam accelerate this knowledge translation? Can you just run through some examples for us from the time a journal article is published until a healthcare provider who's active on social media and EM uses their knowledge from what they learned to improve patient care? Absolutely. So there's different phases of knowledge translation. It's a pretty broad construct. But when we talk about it in foam, that is what we're talking about. We're talking about evidence 
about how to take care of patients that's being published in the literature and how long it takes for that to really become practice. And uh, Ken on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine, he spent a lot of time talking about how, you know, normally these things take a long time. Something's published, but it doesn't really enter practice for years. And how can we do that faster? And so, so I think FOAM has a lot of great examples of, about where it has helped to accelerate knowledge translation. My favorite example, because I was involved in it, is one on targeted temperature management. Uh, you guys would remember uh, in November of this year, there was a New England Journal of Medicine paper published on targeted temperature management. And that's a big journal, but still, usually translation doesn't happen that quickly with such groundbreaking research. And you usually have to go read the article. Usually the first you hear about it is maybe from the article, or maybe it's even a few months before you've heard of the article just because it was in a journal and you haven't quite gotten around to it. It was amazing, the response on social media and in foam to that to that specific study being published. There were 18 blogs and podcasts providing various post-publication perspectives on, on it and what it means to emergency medicine within a week. The subtleties of that conversation... I personally learned a lot more from by reading the many blog posts and listening to the many podcasts than I could have really from just reading that trial alone. And so I think almost everyone in the emergency medicine world that was remotely plugged into these resources knew that there was a big thing and knew that it was going to impact their practice. And then more recently, we've, uh, we've done a piece for it on academic life and emergency medicine. We've actually seen that practice has changed in several places based on that study. Absolutely. I mean, I sometimes will read a paper and I look at it in as academic a way as I can, perhaps not like Ken might, but sometimes I'll come away with a, with a paper thinking something like, for the TTM trial, for example, oh, we don't need to cool patients anymore, which then after reading all the blogs and discussing with all the people across the world, I realized pretty quickly, oh, no, that's the wrong message to take away. It's really not that simple. And and you mean it's a, it was a big study. It was an extremely well-done study. But even in big, really well-done studies, you're going to have different interpretations and you're going to need to dig into a little bit more. And I think that's what this online community can really help us do so that when we're translating it, we're translating it correctly and we know that we're doing the right thing for the patients. Having all of those people instantaneously jump on it and comment is a much quicker way of educating people and shortening the knowledge translation window because that's how this conversation started here. How do we address that knowledge translation window? And it does typically take 10 years for that high-quality TTM trial to filter down to reach the patient's bedside. Not this time. This time it happened in a matter of days. Yeah, so I think the bottom line with knowledge translation for the targeted temperature management trial is that very quickly, people not only knew about the trial, but had a very sophisticated understanding of what it was, what it meant, and what it didn't mean for their patient care. Before we go on to the next chapter in this podcast, I just want to finish up with the general concepts and definitions. And the last one we'll talk about is the concept of the flipped classroom. Dr. Rogers, what is a flipped classroom and how can it help us learn better? So quite simply, the flipped classroom takes what we've all been exposed to, which is you show up for a lecture, you get a 60-slide PowerPoint presentation, you teach a bunch of new concepts, and then learners leave and either go home and do more work or they do assignments based on that. And I base my understanding of 
the flip classroom on the book that I read by Salman Khan, The One World Schoolhouse, which is a fantastic book. And my understanding of how the flip classroom is supposed to work is based on my own experience with my children. Uh, you're, my kids now are 13 and 10. And several years ago, when the Khan Academy website came out, someone said, you know, hey, you should check this out if your kids ever have trouble with math. Well, turns out my son came home. He's in a very high-level math class, and he had this one problem. He just could not grasp the concept. And I said, what is it you did in class? Did, did, did your teacher show you slides, or what did they do in class? And he said, I just don't know. He went over the concept over and over, and he had slides, and, and he just didn't get it. So we went to the Khan Academy website. He watched a three-minute video on the, on the concept he was having trouble with, and he instantly grasped it. He instantly had it and could apply it and understand it and even apply it to the real world. I tried this later with my daughter, who at the time was nine, and she didn't grasp a simple concept. We went watched a four-minute video. She instantly had it, instantly. So I thought, what in the world are they doing? And my kids go to a good school. What, are the, what in the world are they doing in my kids' school where they can get the core knowledge at home what are they doing in the classroom? They should be doing discussion and group work and, and, and talking about how to take this and be creative and innovative with it so that our kids in the future are prepared for the jobs that they're not going to be prepared for. So I started to look at this in relation to, to what we do in medicine, the flipped classroom. And, it, and I think a lot of people are, are really, really hot on this topic. And it's really not a new concept. It's been around for a number of years. And I think Salman Khan has just kind of popularized it in the educational media. And essentially, it's you do the work at home, and how to do that properly is another issue. For example, medical students, instead of giving a 10-lecture series on approach to chest pain, approach to belly pain, approach, I mean, we've all heard those, and we've all participated with them. They're just boring. Uh, why not create a robust video system, maybe 10-minute long for each topic, and have them watch it before they show up? And then during those sessions, the live sessions, you can actually spend time talking about patient management and some of the nuances to, to patient care that the students really need. And so the idea is that the flipping idea is that you give them and deliver them the material you normally give them in a lecture. They get that at home or they get it on their iPad or in a podcast. You can also flip with podcasting so that the live sessions are now more robust with interaction and actual cases and and trying to teach some of that tacit knowledge as opposed to here's my PowerPoint slide, here's my PowerPoint slide. People still do that, and it, it's just it's not effective. We now know that if you're going to be an effective educator, you should actually teach the way that they learn, and they don't learn the way that we've been doing it. The, but the beauty of it is you can pause, rewind, or even fast-forward your teachers. If you're ahead of the curve, and this is what happens in school systems, you can actually go further. And if you're slower and maybe you missed a concept, you can rewind your teacher and watch that video again or read that article again or whatever it is. So it's more in line with the way learners learn today, which is we're in the digital age. They, they learn by rewinding and pausing their teachers, not by sitting in a lecture and listening to the same boring presentations we've been delivering for years. And people like it. So the way we've been doing resident rounds for a while is we ask someone to read a chapter of Rosen's and then we'll have a presentation by one of our faculty on whatever topic that is. That's sort of a flipped classroom model there. How is this new idea of flipped classroom different than what we've been doing you know, at U of T for the last few years? It's a good question because if you look at how we structure, for example, education for the residents, some would argue we're already flipping, like you said. We're, we're giving them something before, 
and then we're talking about it in class or in the lecture hall. But the problem is I don't think we're doing that at all. I think what's happening is we're handing out assignments, reading assignments, uh, articles, PDFs, and we're still giving the same crappy lecture live. I think if you do it appropriately, Rob Cooney's got some great stuff on this and Stella Yu, and there's a lot of people who are really much more knowledgeable about this than I am. The appropriate way to do it is to utilize that class time and have no slides and have a discussion, talk about cases, talk about how to apply what they've read as opposed to just reviewing what they read. To really geek out, we're basically just trying to take them from the bottom of Bloom's taxonomy and of learning to up to the application and creation Absolutely, levels. We're yeah. trying to get them involved when they're actually in the classroom. Right. So an example of what this might look like would be, okay, so we've got that DKA lecture that we do every year. Well, maybe we should take that DKA lecture that was an hour really drill it down to its essential components, put it together in an engaging way in either a podcast or a video cast and have them watch that before they come in. You might need to give them some time to do that because not everyone has all the time to, to get all this stuff done before, especially if you give a lot of, a lot of other assignments. But then you get to class and maybe rather than giving a lecture, then you're going to put them into groups of residents from fourth year to them to the medical students and you're going to have them write out the DKA treatment policy as what they think it should be at your institution. Sure, they're going to use their iPads, they're going to look stuff up, they're going to be talking, but they're going to really be applying and creating something new. And that's going to be a higher level of active learning than what they have done historically or what they're going to get from sitting there passively having knowledge transmitted to them that may or may not get in. Now that we've got a bit of an idea of what social media is, what foam is, knowledge translation, tacit knowledge, and the flipped classroom are, let's move on to quality assurance and peer review. In other words, how can we assess whether the information we garner from social media is reliable or not? So in the second part of this episode, I want to talk a little bit about quality assurance, peer review, and educational curriculums. Dr. Toma, how does the traditional peer review process compare to online open peer review post-publication, and what are the pros and cons of each? So this is an often discussed question online. So we've got the traditional peer review process where you know you send in a, a research article that you've done, you get three faceless or three or four faceless people are looking at it, providing feedback. That goes to the editor. They make they make a decision. They send you your information back. You modify your manuscript or you just get rejected and 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 that's how that works. And that's kind of what we've been using for decades or more to to really peer review the literature. I think that started up heavily in the 70s. And that's not how things generally work in the online world. So that's the established paradigm. That's the scholarly gold standard, effectively. But online, we don't always have that peer review process happening beforehand. So the online folks trust a bit more in what we consider post-publication peer review, whereas you've got comments. As soon as you post your blog post, as soon as you post your podcast, you got comments and they, they're criticizing things. If you know, if you say something that isn't quite right, they're asking questions and they're having a dialogue about what you said and, and how accurate it is. And that I think can give you some degree of credibility as well. And I think that's really what it all comes down to with peer review is what are we looking for out of our peer review? We're looking to know, is this information that I'm reading? Is it credible for me? And some would argue that in the past, 
pre-publication peer review has made some massive errors. If you want to look online for criticism of something like the International Stroke Trial 3 or IST3, you'll find a ton of people saying that this trial was just not presented properly in the literature in terms of the conclusions that it drew from the data that it had. So there's errors that happen in that process. There's also can be stuff posted online that people don't like initially, but I think usually those in post-publication peer review do get called out. I think a great example of that is uh, Dr. Scott Weingart has a, has a podcast and some people like what he says. Some people don't like what he says, but generally people tell him. So you look at some of his podcasts and in the blog posts that hosts them, you'll have 10, 15, 20, 30 comments of dialogue going back and forth providing some more contexts and other opinions on those thoughts that were shared. So I think there's two models there. I think the popular conception in the scholarly world is that there is no peer review with any of the online resources. And I don't think that's accurate, but there's going to be a difference of opinion on that. And it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Brent, I really like what you said there. And I think you summarized it really well as the difference between peer review for prior to publication and post-publication peer review. Just to give you a little perspective, it's been going on for hundreds of years, that process. And it's been going on for hundreds of years, and it really hasn't been tinkered with much until this new thing of social media came out. And from my experience in publishing a blog with my podcast, I get information sent back to me if I've made an error or got the wrong graph or, or said a word backwards or didn't come out just quite the way I wanted to say it. And people send comments into me and I can correct it. It's not a static medium. It's ever-changing and modifiable and growing. And so I really like the post-peer review process because it makes my work better. So you've still got some of those critics out there that are bent on using that old peer review process. What are some of the online medical educational resources doing now to try and reconcile the old and the new? So there, there's some great examples out there. And again, remembering that it all comes down to credibility. Some people have started using peer review and incorporating it in a different way. Some people have started using an editorial process. So we actually just published an article in the Canadian Journal of Emergency Medicine. It, it's available online. And Dr. Michelle Lin of Academic Life and Emergency Medicine has started a pre-publication and kind of post-publication peer review process that's described in that paper, whereby we recruit an expert in the area of that blog post, and we have them comment openly with their name attached to it in a peer review box at the bottom of the blog post. So not only do you get that information, but you get that expert's perspective on that information and whether it is accurate or not. So I think having that type of thing helps to increase the credibility of the resources that we're posting online. So I think the bottom line is that peer review, whether it's pre-publication or post-publication, provides some credibility to the resources that we're using. And we've got to consider that in the context of our clinical situation and our own critical appraisal of that information to help make the best decision for our patients. We had mentioned before about textbooks. Textbooks are very important sources of information for EM learning, and I personally always start with a textbook when I'm reviewing a topic. Textbooks seem for some reason trustworthy. However, as Alma Matu might say, that author selection for textbook chapters has less to do with experience and more to do with who you know, and they're a few years out of date. 
Foam sources overcome the publication lag issue, but what about the trustworthiness issue? How can a learner decide presently on how trustworthy a particular foam source is? I think one of the things that the foam providers should do for quality and trust is to identify who they are and where they're getting their information from and making sure that they're citing it, just like you'd expect from any trustworthy source. And you gain that trust by making sure you make that information upfront and available to the people consuming the information. So podcasters and bloggers have a reputation to uphold, just like the big journals like JAMA do. So we're driven to make the information we disseminate about patient care as accurate and balanced as possible, right? Exactly. And just like the journals have a reputation to protect, and they're going to be embarrassed if they make editorial mistakes or there are problems with their publication, I think the same would apply to a podcaster or a blogger. They're going to be embarrassed if they don't get it right. And so there's a lot of... I guess, emphasis, at least when I'm doing my work, to make sure that I'm getting accurate and correct. And believe me, if I'm not, I'll hear about it from some of my best constructive critics. I totally agree. And with trustworthiness as well, we've been doing a little bit of research. And and our hypothesis, I guess, that we came up with for how you should look at blogs and podcasts and decide which ones to use was that when people follow another person on social media or through various other means or they go to their website frequently, or they link to it, they're providing some sort of endorsement of that resource. And so we tried to take that type of information and plug it into a metric we called the social media index. And, and, you know, I thought that would be a good way to measure both the impact of resources, but also get an idea of who really is endorsing them. And and, and I thought that would correlate with quality. Some people may not believe that it really correlates with quality. They might just think, well, followership, that's just how popular you are. So we, we are getting into the quality question and we're doing a lot of work we're actually doing a study right now specifically looking at what makes a quality podcast and what makes a quality blog and we're going to have a consensus conference at the uh, international conference on residency education later this year so well right now i think it's a little bit difficult and i think for me mostly i use endorsements of other people that i've come to trust as to decide which resources to use But in the future, I think I'm going to be able to look at the literature and it will help me to determine what a quality resource is. So at this point in the podcast recording from Cape in my hotel room, there was a knock on the door. Room service came to bring us beer. And Dr. Rogers gave us some great advice on how emergency doctors can open beers. Yeah. Okay. So, Dr. Rogers, I hear there's a very specific way that emergency doctors are able to open beer bottles so that they can get that beer into them as fast as possible. You can actually open a beer bottle with a regular curved Macintosh blade, just like you would intubate a patient. So you, you go to work, you save some lives, and then you bring those blades home and you can open beers with them. So is that an RSI, a rapid sequence inebriation? <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Quick. Very nice, Ken. One of the criticisms of foam and social media and emergency medicine is that it's not a real curriculum. And there's some people out there that are basing their entire emergency medicine education on online learning at the expense of the basic building blocks What do you say to the criticism that learners who are only learning from foam miss out on the basics or the fundamentals of emergency medicine? 
Well, it's, it's a great question. And I've had residents that have come up to me during shifts and they're quoting Scott Weingart or they're quoting some other blog or some other podcast. And they're talking about really advanced concepts. But at the same time, when I ask them a simple question or I try to probe their understanding of something that I think a, maybe a second year resident should know, they don't really have that basic answer. And so I think the danger as it foam stands now is people are looking at ways to make a true foam curriculum. And I, I think foam is sometimes misunderstood. You know, the question is, can, can foam completely replace the traditional textbook? And I know Rob Cooney, I think Rob has replaced his entire residency with a foam based flip the classroom kind of approach to, to how he trains residents. So it can be done. And, and people are looking at ways to make a foam curriculum, as, as you mentioned, but I think we struggle with how to do it best. Well, what I think about that issue is that different learners require different tools and different resources to learn. And how I may learn may be different than how you may learn. And because of the flexibility of the platform of foam and social media, that means that the consumers of the medical information can decide what works best for them. So if they like listening to podcasts, great. If they want to you know, look through a blog, Great. If they want to pick up a textbook, great. The bottom line is they need to get that information, that fundamental information. And where I see foam actually being a really good aspect at this point, at this point early on still, is that it can add upon the fundamentals. And it can you can ask that clinical question once you have the information to actually form a question and then go out and get that resource. So I'm going to take a middle ground on this one. The textbook has is great because it basically just covers everything in a row. And you know what you've read, you know what you haven't read. The problem with foam, if you just consume it passively, is that you're going to get some stuff covered extraordinarily well, like right. airway stuff. You get ridiculous details in airway stuff, but you might not get the the less exciting stuff. You might say the boring stuff, the stuff that I you know started my yeah, site to you start get like covering. The, the Swiss cheese learning where you're getting holes here and there. Yeah. Right. So I mean, I think you could potentially build a curriculum with foam, but I think you'd need to be very active in making sure that you're reaching all of your learning objectives and all of your topic areas that you need to cover. And that doesn't, you're not going to get that just by passively, you know, picking the most popular podcasts and blogs, because there's going to be things, they don't have curriculums that they're designing to cover everything in emergency medicine in the way that a textbook is written. But they're going to, Brett, and it's a tool like anything else. And it's how you use the tool Mm -hmm. and how you apply the tool that says more about the person using the tool than it does about the tool itself. So suffice to say that foam can supplement what we read in textbooks, but can't replace it. It's an adjunct. I guess the other point is that there are some blogs out there uh, and some podcasts as well that are dedicated to just the basic fundamental concepts in emergency medicine. Well, you've got great ones like Boring EM. Uh, You know, a shout out to Brent. Basic EM with Steve Carroll. I mean, doing great stuff on core fundamental. Yeah, so you're already building the right there. There's your foam curricula starting from the ground. It's it's happening already. But a textbook didn't happen overnight either, Mm -hmm. too. And they had to write the chapters. And they didn't have a completed product when they first got started. And so foam's not complete. The bubbles are going to continue to happen. And we will probably, probably have a curriculum by the end of it. And I look forward to seeing when it is. There's actually a brand new podcast that's started by a medical student. I think she just became a resident from somewhere in the south in the States. That Are you, are you talking about Lauren Westifer? Yes. Yeah, she's delightful. Oh, yeah, she was just at our teaching course. She She's a, 
a novelty. She's, she's, a she's interesting. Yeah, no, she's, she's a superstar. A superstar. And, and she's she's just started a podcast it's called I, Foamcast. Yeah, Foamcast. I just noticed that their whole podcast is dedicated to exactly what we're talking about, getting those fundamental basics down for medical students and junior residents. Who's the other? The Jeremy Faust, right? Yeah, Jeremy, Jeremy Faust. Faust and Lauren Westifer, both outstanding individuals, and I was honored to have them critically appraise and assess my phone podcast, I guess, when they were doing one on renal colic. So, I mean, they, you know, it's coming, and that's what I'm saying. It's coming. I don't think it's there yet, but I'm pretty sure we're going to get there. Dr. Rogers, some active phone people out there are saying that Twitter is dying. Others criticize it for being too short to have an intelligent discussion, only 140 characters. And others say that there's too much extraneous stuff to sift through for it to be worthwhile. How would you suggest that our listeners use Twitter? Well, first of all, I don't think Twitter is dying at all. In fact, I think it's growing. I've heard the debates and I follow these on Twitter, Chris Nixon and Scott Weingart. It has some tweets in the last couple of months about if you're going to get into any discussion whatsoever, you should probably take it to some place like Google Plus, where you can have a much more robust conversation out of 140 characters. I wish Twitter was more characters, but it's probably never going to be. And I don't disagree with that. I think if you're because how much can you say in 140 characters really that's meaningful? It's like a text message that you can't really interpret the meaning behind the person who's typing it. So. You can get into you know sort of pseudo arguments with people on Twitter because you can't really explain yourself on 140. So I do think that if you're going to really sort of dig deeper, I think you probably want to move that to a place where it is more robust and more searchable, perhaps. But the problem is, I think a lot of people just don't go to Google Plus. I think there are clearly lots of people who do, but you know, Twitter's on your phone, it's on your laptop, it's on your iPad. Everyone's familiar with it. It's easy, and I think ease of use ends up being probably one of the most important aspects of this is what will people actually go look at and actually type? And I I think the answer is Twitter. I find that Twitter is the perfect medium for the eMERGE doc. Squirrel, because we tend to have short attention spans. And if I can't get my message across in 140 characters, I think I'm losing interest. So it really, what it does for me is it, it forces me to focus my specific communication and yeah, you can't get into a, maybe a big detailed conversation, so it could be a way to start a conversation, and then you could carry it on somewhere else. But I really like the instantaneous nature of the Twitter, the 140 characters. It makes me think hard, and then I've got to get my message down really, really tight before I hit that send button. And so I think it's perfectly set up for emergency doctors. So you've been talking about conversations about particular EM topics. You can ask questions that you would like different opinions on, or you ask questions to significant opinion leaders out there in emergency medicine. That's one way. You can ask questions in real time about real cases on the floor and get different opinions. You can share articles, blog posts, videos, podcasts. You know, During this conference that we're recording this at, at CAPE, there's been hundreds of tweets that have gone out about content from the Cape Conference and people's opinions of it. Those seem to be the different ways that we can use Twitter. Do you see Twitter as a growing, valuable resource, or do you think that it'll just get so bunged up with thousands and thousands and thousands of people on there that it'll just become overwhelming? 
So I, I really think it depends how, to, how you use it. Realistically, if you're not following hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people, you're not going to be getting all of those messages. So I think there is merit to the idea that you need to be somewhat selective in who you're following. So you're getting quality information that you're really interested in. I agree that the discussion thing, I mean, it's not great for discussions, but it is great for sharing information. I love it for the links that I get sent and for being directed by a person that I respect to a resource that is going to be helpful. And I think that by following those people, you can stay in touch with what's really happening online. And then I think another, you mentioned the conference circuit. I mean, Twitter is just becoming huge on the conference circuit for both promotion as well as for interaction with the speakers and with the other people at the conference. And and I think that's something that's going to continue to grow, despite the fact that it isn't great for these discussions, as as has been mentioned by many people. It's quick, it's immediate, you can exchange information, and yeah, you can start the conversation, you can put up great links. And you know, a lot of the people that I've met through social media has primarily been through Twitter. Absolutely. I would agree. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so we've talked a little bit about Twitter how we can use it to help educate ourselves. A little bit about Google+, that it's a little bit more robust than Twitter, but that Twitter is a good place to start. What about Google Hangout? What's a Google Hangout? How does it work? So a Google Hangout, uh, probably Academic Life and Emergency Medicine, I think they're making the, the most use of this resource. And basically, it's a video conferencing piece of software. But not only can a video conference, it can actually send that video conference and share that video conference live to people all around the world. So what we've been doing using it for at Academic Life and Emergency Medicine is to interview authors of big papers. So we interviewed Ian Steele and Jeff Perry on their subarachnoid hemorrhage article. We interviewed Nicholas Nielsen on the targeted temperature management paper. And people were able to watch our live interview of Nicholas Nielsen and tweet us questions that we were able to ask him during the interview. So it's a very, it's sort of a synchronous form of education that's removed from any conferences or anything else. It's just, it's happening. It's happening at this time and it can be used for so many things. I think that's one application that I just described, but it's also just great for collaborating with different people around the country, around, around North America or around the world. And Brent, correct me if I'm wrong, but you can also archive that and upload it directly to video for YouTube. And so if you can't watch it live, the Google Hangout live, you know, interviewing these big authors, you can actually consume it later at a later date, correct? Absolutely. It can automatically record it for and upload it on YouTube as you're doing the conversation. You can be a minute behind. You can be five minutes behind. You can stop it, pause it, and play it again when you get a second. Okay, so that's Google Hangout. What about Google Glass? What What is Google Glass and... Is there any role for it in medical education? Well, I, I think there's a role. I think people are struggling to, to figure out what the role is. And basically, Google Glass is wearable technology. Just imagine you're putting on a pair of glasses without lenses. So you've got this frame that you're putting over your ears. It's sitting on the bridge of your nose. And then over the right eye, so the upper lateral quadrant of your eye, there's a very, very small cube of glass. This is why it's called Google Glass. And just imagine a very, very tiny iPhone that's in the the right upper part of your vision, and you basically have that situated over your right eye. You can see emails that come through. You can see text messages. And there's lots of other different programs, like you can be in another country. And the glass, if you actually aim your eyes and look in the direction of a sign, a road sign written in another language, it'll actually interpret it for you. So there's, there's some cool applications, but it's basically a pair of glasses 
without the lens. And I'll just give you an example to, to sort of solidify it a bit. Let's say you were trying to teach another residency or even another country, uh, the, the physicians there, how to do ultrasound. So I could be in Maryland wearing Google Glass, doing hands-on ultrasound, and they could be watching that on a Google Hangout and be learning it from a distance, maybe even another country or time zone. So you can use it for distance learning. You can use it for, for teaching people all over the world. You can obviously take pictures with it, videos with it. You can now live stream conferences from Google Glass. I think there's a role. I just haven't quite figured out what it is yet. There's a lot of issues that have to be sorted out, like the battery life is not very good. There's issues with the live stream, which is basically recording a live event on the glass and then transmitting it so people can watch it. I think those bugs have to be sorted out, and I think they probably will be. I think it's interesting, like Matt Matt Dawson and Mike Mallon with the Ultrasound Podcast are doing some projects with the glass to see if they can teach ultrasound remotely. So they're wearing the glass, they're doing ultrasound, they can see the screen and the patient and the way the probe is positioned, and then someone from a distance can actually watch that and maybe learn that in just a couple of minutes' time. And so that would be valuable for countries that don't have any resources. So I think there's some application Obviously, the price has to be sorted out. Currently, the price, my wife nearly popped an aneurysm when I told her that I paid $1,500 for a pair of Google Glass. But I think that price will come down. I think the bugs will probably get sorted out. And then I think that we'll figure out how to use it. There's conferences being set up around Google Glass. There's one in Indiana, I think in July, that I was invited to speak at. And it's basically a whole two-day conference on how do you use Glass to teach. So I think people are... Still, still trying to sort it out, but I think it'll be sorted out. Dr. Toma, do you think that social media tools should be taught as part of the curriculum in medical school or part of CME for practicing physicians? And if so, how would you envision this happening? I think social media is potentially a great resource for medical education, but as they say, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't force it to drink. Social media is really an active activity. You like you get out of it what you put into it. And if medical students or practicing physicians don't want to or aren't interested in participating actively, they're not going to get a whole lot out of using social media. So what I do think is essential is teaching some social media basics. I think that social media can really amplify your message and your voice for better or for worse. And I think medical students need to be aware of that and how what they say online can get them into trouble or can be very beneficial to their careers. The other reason I think it's important for medically educated people to really be able to know how to use social media is because that's where a lot of messages get transmitted. And those messages can be good or bad. Anti-vaccine messages are all over social media. And if we're going to be physicians that want to promote health, I think we need to be there to provide the counter message to what those people are saying, because if we're not there, they're the only voice that is. Brent, I'd look at this in two different ways. I don't think we need to teach medical students social media, but what I think we could teach them is how to use social media and put it in clinical context and also put some framework around it to avoid some pitfalls in using social media, in particular patient privacy. And then when it comes to practicing physicians, these are the people maybe that need to be taught the actual tool. What is Twitter? What is a podcast? What is Facebook? So let's get a little bit more into that for the people who haven't started on Twitter, for example, and use these social media resources. 
can you guys give us some basics, the basic rules of starting on social media? I think what really drew me in finally was when I started actively getting involved. So passive consumption of this, these resources, some people enjoy that. Some people can get a lot out of it. But I think when you start actively contributing and engaging with the people that are producing these resources, that's when it becomes way more interesting for you. So I'd challenge people, go, you know, if you're reading a blog post and it's on a topic you find interesting, make a comment, start a discussion. And, and I think you're going to start getting more out of your experience and what you're listening to. I found 10 tips for foam beginners. It's from I Teach EM, but it was modified by Chris Nixon and Mike Cadigan in an article called Free Open Access Medical Education for the Emergency Physician, which was published in Emergency Medicine Australasia just a few months back. And the top 10 things are the following. One, sign up on Twitter. Two, register as a foam user. Three, be identifiable. Don't be anonymous. Four, be professional. Five, be active. Don't let anyone be wrong on the internet. Six, be generous with your criticism and with what you share. Seven, the more you put in, the more you get out. Eight, use key foam resources to get started. Nine, use filters to beat information overload and be filtered yourself. Ten, have fun and don't take it too seriously. That last one, I mean, it's supposed to be a social media thing. It's supposed to be a positive experience. It's supposed to be learning and stuff. And I have learned so much through social media and the way it's taken off. And I found it a real positive experience. So I like the fact that their list ends with something positive. And it's not the, these big rules about thou shalt not do this and must be worried about that. For people who want to receive the benefits, and there are a lot of them, of social media, you've got to jump out and start interacting with people. Chris Nixon, for example, I'm good friends with now, he saw something that I wrote on Twitter, and he just responded. And I had no idea who this guy was initially. And then I looked him up and learned some more about him, and he starts interacting with more people. And he and I developed this relationship on Twitter, and it's it's blossomed into a friendship. It's blossomed into exchanges for teaching and conferences, both in Australia and the U.S. And and so it's fine to watch and be what I call a voyeur on Twitter. But if you really want to get the benefits of learning and propelling yourself, I think you've got to start committing, commenting. It's okay to ask people questions, comments. Just start interacting with people. It's it's fantastic. Don't fear social media. We have been doing this for 2,000 years. We are social creatures, and we like interacting with each other. So don't fear social media. Be yourself. Be honest. Be who you are, who you are in real life, and be who you are online. And then, of course, engage in something that interests you, something that you're passionate about. So up until now, we've been talking about social media as a learning tool. What about social media as a tool for enhancing your career? Is there any role for social media in terms of developing your career as an emergency physician? The last time I checked, everybody wants to do better in their career. And the last time I polled people, they always want to be happier in their career. And what I found with the more I've become engaged in social media is I've become happier. It's increased my job satisfaction because I've met people that there is no way I'd ever would have met had it not been for Twitter. 
I couldn't agree more. And in terms of just the pure happiness factor and job satisfaction, that's my experience too. Everybody wants to know more and, and to know that the, the care they provide is is truly, really great care. And, you know, again, I think we're all pretty smart, but if we collectively get together, I think we're even smarter. And I think anytime you're smarter, you're going to be happier. So I, I think this could be used academic, private practice, community, wh- wherever you work. I think getting involved, it, it's simply going to enhance your career. I'm just going to borrow from Brent, and I th- he gave a, a beautiful analogy of an amplifier. You know, you have your guitar, you're amplifying your sound, and I think the amplifier is the social media, right? So you can amplify in a positive way. And I think that if I didn't have any of these tools we're talking about, my career would be okay. And, I, you know, I think I would be probably at an eight on the amplifier perhaps. But, you know, I think the amplifier has, has turned me to 11, yeah, so when you, when you look at examples, and I could, you know, Ken and Brent, I'm sure you guys can, and Anton could talk about, you know, examples of how this has helped you in your career. We talk about it for hours, but d- just a few brief examples. Again, I had mentioned I met Chris Nixon on Twitter, and Chris eventually ended up coming to our teaching course in Baltimore and is going to end up being faculty in our course. He's going to come back and teach. Based on that relationship formed in Twitter, on Twitter, I was invited to speak at the Social Media and Critical Care Conference last year, or this year, I should say, in uh, Australia. When I look back at that, I honestly, and Smack, by the way, was was just one of the best experiences that I've ever had. And, and just being at that conference has led to other invites and other activities and meeting people, all probably traceable back to meeting Chris Nixon on Twitter. So... It's not just about tweeting what you're doing and walking around in the mall and, hey, look at the pair of shoes I got. I mean, it's really useful stuff if you actually get out there, just throw yourself out there. It'll help your career. So, Dr. Rogers, those are some great examples of how foam has affected you personally in your career and how it could potentially affect others in their careers as practicing emergency physicians. Dr. Tomo, what about the academic physician who's doing research, who wants to forward their career. I mean, to me, it kind of seems intuitive that the researcher will want to have nothing to do with foam. They'll think it's fluffy and not, you know, not anything that's worth, worth even looking at. Is there any role for social media in the researcher who wants to forward their career? I could not disagree more. And I think my very, very brief career thus far is a great example of why I don't think that's the case. So in December of 2012, I was a third year emergency medicine resident and I started a blog called Boring EM and I got on Twitter for the first time. And now it's June of 2014. And because I started that, I'm now speaking at the Canadian Association of Emergency Physicians Conference. I've published at least, or had at least have accepted five papers with people that I met on Twitter and have still never met. I've been invited to speak at CORD. I've been invited to speak at SMAC. I've had all those opportunities directly from starting that Twitter account and starting my blog. So as an academic person, I'm now using those profiles to further my research, to promote my research, to really, as we started talking about, to translate my research so that when I do publish something, it's seen by more people. It's read by more people. I get invited to more conferences to speak about it. And it really, I think, really increases my impact as an academic person, as an academic physician. There's a quote from one of the social media articles I read recently that goes, reach audience and voice 
are the things that will determine influence. You want to talk about reach and audience and developing your own voice? That's what social media allows you to do. It makes you louder. It gives you the amplification that you need to get your message across to more people and to give you that influence. So, Dr. Milne, we've been talking about how social media can affect the community practicing physician and researchers. How can social media benefit the rural learner who might not have access to lectures, rounds, and conferences, for example? So, Anton, I'm so happy you asked me that question because a couple of things I'm very passionate about would be rural medicine because I'm a rural doctor and social media because I'm an active podcaster. And I think social media really benefits rural physicians. Why? Because it eliminates one of the barriers people can put up to say why they're not going to practice rurally. Rural practice is an amazing place to practice medicine. But there are barriers. And one of the barriers is that continuous access to great lectures, rounds, and conferences. Well, that's eliminated. Social media is eliminated. You can see a YouTube on that. You can follow people on Twitter. You can get a blog. You can get a podcast. That is no longer a barrier for practicing in rural medicine. And so that rural patients can get that great, high-quality, evidence-based care they both deserve and expect because their rural physician can stay up to date and stay plugged in to that really growing academic environment that is always taking place. So I love that question, combining two of my very, very favorite things, rural medicine and social media. Matt Dawson, an ultrasound guru from Kentucky who hosts the Ultrasound Podcast, said in a talk he gave at your amazing teaching course, Dr. Rogers, which I did watch online, by the way. Is it actually called The Amazing Teaching Course? It is called The Spectacular Superb Amazing Teaching Course, yes. And this is coming from someone who's an ultra sounder, not an average sounder. <laughs> Boo. Oh, sorry. You, you cut that one out. Uh. So Matt, in his lecture, said that he has spent about $16,000 producing his ultrasound podcast and his iBook. And I heard from another online lecture that Mike Cadigan spends about 75000 bucks a year of his own money on his Life in the Fast Lane blog and some other blogs. This begs the question, why do podcasters and bloggers do it? Why do they spend 50, 60, 70, 100, 200 hours a month working on online medical education offerings that are losing money? So I think there's three, three main points that I have on this question. And the, the first response, I think, is that we enjoy it. It's fun. It's great to interact. It's a great way to learn. Number two, I think most of us think we're making a valuable contribution to medical education and knowledge translation. And I think there's some value to that. And finally, I don't really think we can say that these guys aren't getting anything out of it. I mean, myself, I just mentioned all the benefits that I've received from my involvement. When you say names like Mike Cadogan, Michelle Lynn, Scott Weingart, Matt Dawson, and, and people know who you're talking about, clearly they're getting something out of that. And so I think these opportunities that they're receiving and that you've received as a result of this is a reason why people are doing it and being drawn to it as well. These people are just incredibly passionate about what they do. I do it because I love it. That's what social media allows you to do. Mm -hmm. 
something that you're passionate about. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't force it to drink. The best of foam will bubble up to the top. Experiential, the pearls, the pitfalls. Collectively, we can be a lot more intelligent and learn a lot from each other. To filter down to reach the patient's bedside. Sexy podcast voice. What are they doing in the classroom? Applying and creating something new. Group hug. This month's quote of the month is by Max Planck, one of the greatest scientists of the 20th century. A new scientific truth does not triumph by convincing its opponents and making them see the light, but rather because its opponents eventually die and a new generation grows up that is familiar with it. That's beautiful. That's awesome. Because this episode was mainly about foam, we'll leave you with one last sound to remember the podcast by. <laughs>